Good afternoon. Welcome back to Christian Haldeman. He uh, went on a long journey. I remember after a month of you being gone, somebody asked in church, what happened to Christian? We can't see him anymore. They were really concerned that uh, you backslid or something and you're not coming to church anymore. So Christian was on a uh, long journey in uh, the Philippines to uh, discover his roots, part of his roots, and Asia. And uh, he's back now, so welcome back. Um, Today we will continue with our series in Mark, and we are coming to the end of the book. So I hope that um, uh, you have been enjoying so far, and uh, we have been able to learn. Sorry. Um, And I would like to continue our series today by talking about discipleship. If you have your Bibles with you while I set this up, if you want to open up to Mark chapter 14, we'll be reading a a portion of scripture from there. Mark chapter 14. There are Bibles also under the chairs if you haven't brought your Bible with you. I didn't uh, put the scripture on the slide because it's quite long. Um, So feel free to use one of the Bibles in front of you. Mark chapter 14 verses 32 to 42. They came to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. Distress and anguish came over him, and he said to them, The sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. Stay here and keep watch. He went a little farther on, threw himself on the ground, and prayed that if possible, he might not have to go through that time of suffering. Father, he prayed, my father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup of suffering away from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he returned and found the three disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Weren't you able to stay awake for even one hour? And he said to them, keep watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away once more and prayed, saying the same words. Then he came back to the disciples and found them asleep. They could not keep their eyes open, and they did not know what to say to him. When he came back the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is now being handed over to the power of sinners. Get up. Let us go. Look, here is the man who is betraying me. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this opportunity we have to be in your house once again. And we thank you that you have invited us to come here as your people and as your disciples. We pray that as we um, study this scripture today, you help us understand a bit more what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, we pray that you give us an obedient heart to not only be hearers of your word, but to be able to put it into practice as well. We pray that you be with us now by your spirit, Lord, and minister to us and help us understand and apply the things that are important for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple, in your opinion? A follower of Jesus, yeah? What else? A follower of a certain teaching. Yeah? Uh huh. Christian. To be a Christian. Yeah. A disciple is a Christian. 
Is it possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple? Not really, isn't it? In fact, if you think about the term Christian, is it ever used in the Bible? Does Jesus use the word Christian? Does he say, follow me and you'll become a Christian? It's not, isn't it? He doesn't really use it. Um, we talked about it in our NT uh, survey class that the term Christian was used by non-believers in Antioch for the first time to talk about the church. And it seems that it was in a, uh, you know, in a bad way. Right? They were looking down at them and saying, these people are following this human being Christ. You know, we call them Christian. It wasn't really a title that the early believers would have been even proud of. So to be a Christian is to be a disciple. You can't be a Christian without being a disciple. Let's look at a few things here before we uh, go on. And um, while I... Allow me to change this here quickly. Because it got mixed up. This is the right one. Okay. There are three things I want to say about discipleship here. The first one, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means that we are called by Jesus. And disciples are those that are called by Jesus. We are called by Jesus, which we need to understand is a great privilege. Jesus was a rabbi. And rabbis in uh, the New Testament time were a bit like universities today. If you wanted to go for further studies, there was no school that you could go to. You would go to a rabbi. Now, um, Jesus, if you were to compare him with all other rabbis, he was the Oxford rabbi of his time, so to say. He was the best rabbi. And I think that um, Pastor René mentioned in one of his sermons on Mark that even today, um, uh, educators who aren't even Christian recognize that Jesus was one of the greatest teachers ever. If you look at what he taught, whether you believe it or not, the stories that he came up with, the parables, um, the insight of his teaching, the depth of his uh, teaching, um, not only the ethics of his teaching, because it's not just ethical teaching, but the transformational power of his teaching um, is something unparalleled. You can't find anyone else like Jesus. So um, let's agree that he was the Oxford of his time. Now, if you think of Oxford today, is it easy to get into Oxford it's not. It's very difficult. I remember when I studied here, I had a classmate who finished law at Cambridge, and she came to do a theology degree at uh, LST as well. And I was a bit surprised to hear her so many times talk about the fact that she went to Cambridge. Um, and in a way, if you are maybe new here, you're a bit irritated. But then I came to understand that this is really such a big deal. And if you make it into Cambridge and you, um, you know, study law, You're so proud of it that you're happy to talk about it as much as possible. It is a great privilege to be called to be disciples of Jesus. Unlike other rabbis in his time, it is Jesus who chose his disciples. With other rabbis, you would go and they would be happy to have you. Jesus, he carefully chose his disciples, a bit like Oxford and Cambridge do today. But if you look at the people he chose, you would see that he didn't choose the most qualified He chose simple fishermen. He chose people that were considered even sinners. People were, the other rabbi said, you know, you're you're choosing sinners, you're choosing Matthew to follow you. What kind of rabbi are you? He chose people um, that were revolutionaries, that were probably um, even killers, or might have killed, or would have killed, right? Because they were violent revolutionaries like Simon, the zealot. And he chose them to follow him. It is a great privilege to be chosen 
to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. But it is more than that. It is not only a privilege, it is also an obligation, or it implies obligation. Once he chooses us, and we say, yes, Master, I want to follow you, there's an obligation attached to it. Being called by Jesus and calling in a Christian sense is not about self-fulfillment. Now, many times when even Christians talk about calling, uh, we use terminology like, um, you know, I found my calling in life. What do you mean? I found something to do that fulfills me. And that is my calling in life. And that is how we also think um, at times as Christians about being called and our calling in life. But to be called by Jesus doesn't mean that he shows you a path to self-fulfillment. Because as we have seen before, and especially during Easter, when Jesus talked about his crucifixion, he says that if you follow me, you have to take up your cross, you have to deny yourself, and this is how you become my disciple. It is not about self-fulfillment, it is about self-denial. Does that make sense? So we have to be very careful, especially as Christians, to talk about calling in a secular way and to bring that terminology and understanding into the church and to think that this is what calling is also in the context of the church. This is not what Jesus has in mind when he calls the disciples. He doesn't say, come and follow me and I will help you accomplish all your dreams in life. Right? I will pray for you, I will give you the powers, the intelligence you need to accomplish your dreams. No. You follow me, and if you say yes to that, you give up your life. Whatever your ambitions were, you give them up, and now you are here to work with me for the kingdom. You are here for the Father, for us to glorify the Father, to do the work of the Father, to work towards the furtherance of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to follow me. It is not about you. It is about fulfilling the will of the Father. Right? So, being called by Jesus, the first thing about discipleship that we need to know is that it means that we are called by Jesus. It's a great privilege. It is a great privilege for all of us. None of us, in a way, deserved it. We were singing the last song um, about Jesus, that he's magnificent, that he's glorious, that he's so wonderful. This is the person who is calling us. And I think that when we sing that song, and then we meditate on the meaning of that song, it is easy to understand that it's a great privilege that you and I are here. It also means, I mean, there are a lot of things that we can talk about here, but it also means that our salvation doesn't depend just on us. If we say that we are disciples because Jesus called us, none of us can say that I am a Christian because I've chosen to be a Christian and that's it. That's only part of what happened in our lives. The, full, the complete truth is that God has called us first. And we responded to the call of God. And this is why you and I are here. Does that make sense? Your salvation doesn't depend just on what you did. Your salvation and the fact that you are here today um, is down to the fact that God has called you. He has called you either by uh, you being born maybe in a Christian family and parents who have talked to you about uh, God and through that um, the Holy Spirit ministered in your life or a friend brought you to church. Whatever um, happened technically in your life, it is God who used people. It is God who called you. It is God who invited you to be a disciple. Jesus asked you to follow him and this is why you are here today. We responded, yes, there's something that we need to do. We need to respond to the call of Jesus. But it is Jesus who has called us. Secondly, 
Um, to be a disciple is to be called to follow. And somebody's mentioned that before. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that uh, we are called to follow a person. And I understand that this is quite difficult for us. Um, because Jesus is not present with us in the flesh. So when we say that we are called to follow a person, it is someone we don't really see. Um, and this is why uh, many times we maybe find it challenging to stay close uh, to Jesus. Because unlike the disciples, the original disciples who physically saw Jesus, we don't see Jesus. Uh, so how do we follow him then today? If he's not here present with us in the flesh, how can we follow Jesus? Yeah, avoid sinning, that's one way. We follow the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus speaks to us through his word even today, isn't it? We follow Jesus, we spend time with Jesus when we read the word of God. Because that is the word of Jesus, especially the Gospels. And that's an important understanding of the word of God. Because if you think that the word of God is only a guidebook for life, and you know all the rules, then why will you still read it? And sometimes that's one of the reasons maybe why we become lax in reading the word of God. Especially if you've been a Christian maybe for quite some time. You say, well, I already know everything. I've read it already. There's nothing new for me. The word of God is more than just a guidebook for living. It is the place where we fellowship with Jesus because it is the word of Jesus. right? It is the place where we hear Jesus speak to us. And just like in any relationship, if husband and wife, if you don't talk to each other, if I don't hear Ning speak to me for a week, for a month, what happens to that relationship? Automatically you grow cold, isn't it? Communication is important. So we hear Jesus speak to us and we respond, we pray. We fellowship with Jesus by coming here because this is the place where Jesus promised his special presence, isn't it? He said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. When you come together, and Hebrews exhorts us, do not forsake the fellowship um, of the saints. Continue to meet together, isn't it? Because this is where Jesus promised his presence, his special presence to be with us. So we continue to fellowship with Jesus. We are committed to him as a person. But it also means that we follow him in the way he lived his life and served others. To be a disciple and to be a follower of Jesus Christ also means servanthood. He says in uh, Mark chapter 10, if you remember the episode when he enters Jerusalem and he tells them again, I have to uh, be crucified. And the disciples are um, ignorant of that and they continue to fight over who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. He turns around and he says to them, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. For the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to become a servant the way I have been serving you as well. They were fighting over positions in the kingdom of God. John and James were arguing who was the greatest, who is going to, who, who is going to get to sit on the left and right hand side of Jesus when the kingdom of God will arrive in, in its full glory. And Jesus looks at them and says, you've misunderstood what it means to follow me. It's not about political positions. It is about being a servant to everyone. Being a servant to everyone. This is what it means to work in the kingdom of God. 
This is what it means to do kingdom work. It is not about positions. And he says even um, in Mark, in, sorry, in Matthew 23, when also in the same, uh, Matthew adds it, Mark doesn't have it, but Matthew adds this sentence also when they were fighting over positions. Jesus says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. So he, somehow he's foreseen that, you know, once he ascends to heaven, there might be a competition. Who is the greatest in the church? He says, remember, there's only one teacher. There's only one master. All of you are brothers, right? So how do we follow Jesus? How, we, how do we make a difference in this world in which God has called us to, to follow Jesus? It is not through political positions, Jesus says. And maybe that's important for us to remember, especially now, as we prepare in this country to vote, isn't it? There's a general election soon. And as Christians, we believe that uh, politics and parliament and uh, the MPs and the prime minister, they all have their place and they're all important. But if you ask me, how are we called to make a change in this world? It is not through politics. Jesus doesn't say, once I ascend to heaven, make sure that you get good positions in the political system and this is how you will change the world. He says, no, you will change the world through servanthood. This is how you will make a difference. You will change the world through servanthood. Is that still true for us today? Who has greater power in your mind? What do you think? 10,000 people, 1,000 people who go out in the street and protest against abortion or 1,000 people who are willing to adopt unwanted children. Who will make a bigger difference in society? The one who will adopt children, isn't it? Who will make a bigger difference in the lives of young people in society who are unemployed? Those who lobby the government and their MPs to do something about youth unemployment or a thousand people who are committed to helping young people write their CVs and find work. Maybe even prepare for interview. Take time to prepare them. Who will have a greater impact? You see, I'm not saying that politics is bad or that MPs don't have their place. Of course, that is important as well. But as Christians, we are called, first of all, to make a difference by being servants, by serving others the way Jesus Christ served. Amen? If God is calling any of us to become an MP, that's wonderful, isn't it? But we need to be realistic about it. Not all of us you know, will become MPs, yet all of us are called to make a difference in this world, to follow Jesus, to uh, work towards the furtherance of God's kingdom here on earth. How do we do that? Jesus Christ says the key is servanthood. It is becoming a servant to all. If you want to be the greatest, the one with the biggest influence, you have to be the one who serves the most people. Isn't it? It's an upside-down picture of society. In society, the one with the most influence is the one who has the most people under him, right? This is the, the thinking in society. If you, if you lead a company with 100 employees, you have a lot of influence. Jesus Christ turns it upside down. He says, if you serve 100 people, this is how you have most influence and power in society. This is how things are getting changed. It doesn't sound very exciting, isn't it? Servanthood, it sounds very difficult. Yet Jesus says, this is what we are called to do. And he says, I have come to serve. I have come to serve. And if I, your master, have been a servant to all, then you also have to serve each other. Amen. So to follow Jesus Christ is to become a servant of others. And lastly, to be a disciple of Jesus 
We are called to be sent out. It's interesting, the first thing Jesus tells the disciples is this, when he calls them, come follow me and I will. How would you have completed this sentence? Now you're reading it, you know already what it says. But imagine you don't, right? And uh, somebody's asking you, what did Jesus call the disciples for? This is the, the very first statement that Jesus Um, according to Mark, makes here in his conversation with the disciples. When he calls them, they are not disciples yet. He sees them, they are fishing on a lake, and he goes up to them and says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The only thing that he tells them, that discipleship is really all about, yes, follow me, but what are we going to do? Follow you to do what? I will make you fishers of men. Discipleship, And following Jesus is about reaching out to others as well. He doesn't say, follow me and we will have a wonderful time together. We will always fellowship together. And this is what it means to follow me. He doesn't say, come and I will teach you how to go to church every Sunday. He doesn't say, I will teach you how to pray. Come and follow me so I will teach you how to be fishers of men. How is it that what was most important to Jesus seems to be the least of our priorities today. And I'm not just talking about Asia, but Christianity in general. It seems to be one of the things that we are most keen to forget, isn't it? Most tempted to forget about. That we are called not just to enjoy our fellowship together, not just to be a church here and enjoy the things that we do on Sundays, but we are called to be fishers of men, to tell others about Jesus Christ. This is the very first thing that Jesus tells them. And it's also the last thing that he tells them, we know. Before he ascends to heaven, he says, Wait in Jerusalem, and I will give you power from on high, and you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth. He talks about it. As disciples, I want you to be fishers of men, people who go out and make disciples. Disciples making disciples. It is not... Something that we add on to the Christian life. And this is why it is so important for us to understand that the term Christian can be a bit problematic. Because sometimes we think of uh, Christianity um, in terms of you know, steps of growth. Like you are first a Christian and then you are a disciple and then you are maybe somebody who you know, has the boldness to reach out. But Jesus says, no, this is not something that comes at the end. It comes, for Jesus, it comes first. That's the first thing that he mentions. I remember during our last uh, WISL class, uh, if you were here, we uh, had uh, speakers in who spoke on evangelism. We had uh, Steve Frost who came in from London City Mission. And uh, he told me before he came that he's going to bring two other people that work with him. So I was uh, looking forward to see who is bringing al- who, whom he's bringing along. When he came, he started teaching, and then all of a sudden two young guys came in. They were what, I forgot their age, maybe 19, 18 years old. They came in and they shared about how excited they are to go out and to make friends and to share the gospel with people that they don't even know. And when they shared, we found out that they've been Christian for, I think one of them was even less than a year, a Christian. Both of them were still quite new in their faith. Yet they were so excited to go out and to share their faith with others. And they said, yes, you know, there are questions that people ask me. And I say, I don't really know. I don't know the answer. Uh, I can come back to you. I can ask someone. But what I know is that Jesus loves you and that you need Jesus in your life. Is that not interesting? 
Many times we think that, oh, we need to, oh, I, I still need to grow. Now give me another five years, and then I'll have all the answers, and then I can share my faith with others. But Jesus says, no, from the start, I, you know, this is what, what, what it is all about. I, I will make you fishers of men. It is all about sharing your faith with others. And if I think back in my life, and if I think back and remember people that I've met, it is usually those who are youngest in faith who are most excited to share their faith with others. Isn't it strange? Should it not be the other way around? That the more you know Jesus, the more excited you should be to share about Jesus with others. Yet, it is those who are youngest in their faith who are most excited to share their faith with others. I'm saying it because I think it is important for us as a church. I think that as a wind church, and most of our wind churches are known for their community Right? People enjoy the family uh, spirit and uh, that people are quite close. And I hope that you experience that here. I hope that you, look, you don't look at me and say that I've never experienced that here. I hope that you really feel that you're part of this family. And it's good to be known for that. But it would be also wonderful to be known to be a church who is excited to share Jesus with others. Amen? Who is excited to share Jesus with others. Who understands what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That this is not just an add-on. Discipleship is not a uh, pick what you choose, what you want to choose buffet, where you say, okay, I want a bit of prayer, I want a bit of that. Uh, evangelism, no thank you. Um, this, no thank you. That's not for me. It is a complete package, really. Um, and also, in a way, uh, maybe, if you think about it, and again, we can say many things here, but maybe sometimes when we... It, it's a bit like a cycle, you know. People sometimes might say that, you know... I don't feel like going out. I I don't feel like I'm really on fire. Who am I to share Jesus to others, right? I don't feel I'm, I'm on fire right now. But it's a cycle. It's like a vicious cycle. Because if you don't do that, if you become lax about being obedient to Jesus, you will never feel on fire. It is when you go out and do things in obedience to Christ, I think, when you feel that fire again. Does that make sense? Right? If you say that, oh, let me wait for a time that I will feel more excited. Maybe that excitement will not come for a long time. What about just starting doing it and see what God will do in the process? Right? I think this is what is exciting about Christianity and discipleship. It is when we go out in faith, we have the courage to do the things that God is calling us to do. And then allow God to be God and to see how he changes people and how he uses us to speak to people about him. Amen? Now, that's only the introduction. It was a bit longer than I thought. But um, the text that we talked about doesn't talk about discipleship as, as, uh, as such. It talks about why is it so difficult to be a disciple sometimes. But before we move on, I found this um, uh, quote, and I really liked it. Discipleship is not part-time volunteer work that one does as an extracurricular activity. God refuses to accept a minor role in one's life. He requires a controlling place. This is what discipleship is. It is not something that we choose to do when we like to do it. Um, And I hope that we uh, remove that mindset of thinking that there are Christians and there are disciples. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And to be a disciple is to be fully committed to God. So let's go then to our text. Um, The text that we read, I've mentioned today and we've mentioned before that Jesus said, to follow me means that it, it won't be always easy. There'll be persecution, there'll be opposition, 
Um, you won't be popular for following me. If you want, the passage that we read today is the first hurdle of the disciples. So they heard Jesus talk about the difficulty of following him. The passage that we read is now the first instance where following Jesus wasn't easy anymore. Until now it was easy. Right? Jesus was quite popular. There were thousands of people following him. And I would imagine that if you were one of the twelve, um, you were looked up to by people. right? Because Jesus is this uh, miracle worker. Uh, he's the Messiah. And you are the chosen twelve. Right? So obviously people would have looked up to you and respected you. But all of a sudden, things change. Uh, Jesus talks about his crucifixion and the persecution of Jesus starts. And with the persecution of Jesus comes the persecution of the disciples. So after all the teaching, after all the exhortation, after all the warnings about discipleship, the question is, how will the disciples react as they encounter the first hurdle um, in their life and journey as disciples? What is their reaction? What is the test? What is the opposition? Jesus says, come with me, pray with me. Um, it's going to get difficult now and we need to pray together. What do the disciples do? They fall asleep. How many times? Three times. Imagine you studied at university and after four years you uh, have to go for your final exams and you take your three best friends and you tell them, you know, this is going to be really difficult for me. It's going to be a tough exam, but I really trust you. And I know that you really care for me. So please wait outside. And while I write my exam, please pray for me. Right? Then after 15 minutes, you have to go to the toilet and you come out and they're all sleeping. How would you feel about that? Very discouraging, isn't it? If these are your closest friends and they can't even pray with you when you go through a hard time, who else would support you, isn't it? So Jesus comes out three times. He comes to see what the disciples are doing and he sees them sleeping three times. I want us to talk about it now and to talk about not what discipleship is, but why discipleship is many times more difficult than we uh, have maybe thought. The first thing here, and um, we can use this passage here, this um, story, and talk about following Jesus um, and compare it to being awake and being watchful and not asleep. So the first thing here, the first point here is that to sleep is to stop praying. To, stip, to sleep is to stop praying. Jesus asked them to pray, yet when he comes back, the disciples are asleep. How do we apply that to our lives today? Why did the disciples stop praying? What do you think? Satan. Maybe Satan was tempting them. But I think there was something else going on. I think they didn't realize the seriousness of the situation. Until now, there was no opposition. Until now, everything was easy. Until now, Jesus had a solution for whatever their problem was. They didn't realize the seriousness of their situation. Remember, during the Last Supper, when Jesus talked to them about his crucifixion, what were they saying? Peter said, oh, easy, I'll follow you. Say, I can die with you, that's easy. No? On the way... To Gethsemane, when uh, they were preparing to pray, Jesus again talked to them. He said, that, you know, I'm about to drink this cup of suffering. And James and John looked at him and said, we can drink that too. That's not very difficult. They didn't realize that it will be that difficult. They didn't realize that. The reason why they fell asleep is, the reason why they stopped praying and fell asleep is because they didn't realize that they were in the midst of a trial already. 
They were in the midst of a trial already. And I think that's true for us as well. We underestimate the situation that we find ourselves in. We don't realize that we are in the midst of a trial already. We do not realize that maybe our situation, our joblessness, our illness, the temptations that we face, maybe a relationship that we are in, is actually a trial for our faith. It is a trial, a temptation. It is a time of of testing for our relationship with God and our discipleship. We don't realize it. And we think that we can go on as normal. But maybe this is the time to become more prayerful. Maybe this is the time to read scripture more and to draw nearer to God and to ask God to give us more strength. Does that make sense? We've realized that in our lives as well. That when there are times that things are down. Even when we had the news about Astrid, it was not easy. And we did not realize that it won't be that easy for us. And you think that, oh, you, you know in your mind, you know why these things can happen. And you know how, as Christians, you should react to that. You know everything in your mind, yet you do not realize that this can be a real test for your faith. That if you go on, and if you don't prepare yourself, this can be quite difficult. And it is true for us as well that we can go through difficult times. There might be an illness that we experience. There might be a, a problem that we experience in our life. There might be a relationship that we are in that can become a real test of our faith. And because we just go on as if nothing happened, sooner or later we are in the same positions that the disciples were. We fall asleep and we fall. We are not able to stand. Adversity brings out the worst in us while requiring the most of us. This is why we need to be watchful. Adversity brings out the worst in us. Isn't it when we are sick, when we have back pain, we become more impatient, isn't it? Even with simple things. We become more impatient with the people around us. When we are stressed because the exam is in a couple of days, somehow we change a bit, isn't it? We forget to be as kind as we were before. Adversity brings the worst in us when actually the best in us is required for us to go through that test. And this is why we need to pray. We need to be watchful. So Jesus prays. And the Bible, and Mark doesn't just tell us that Jesus prayed, but we have here the prayer of Jesus for us so that we can learn from the prayer of Jesus. There are three things that we learn from the prayer of Jesus. First of all, he expresses his deep anguish. The sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. He expresses this anguish that he has. He goes through a trial. And unlike us, maybe when people ask us and we go through a trial in life, we say, oh, everything is fine. My faith is fine. I'm okay. I feel strong. Jesus says, no, I'm not fine. I am in deep, in deep anguish. He's saying, actually, I'm struggling. It is not easy for me right now. Secondly, he acknowledges God's power to save. So yes, he acknowledges the trial and the severity of the trial, but he's not overwhelmed by it, right? He acknowledges still God's power to save him. Father, my father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup of suffering away from me. And that is where we stop in our prayer many times. We might go through a testing time and we might say a similar prayer and say, God, I believe that you have the power to save me. God, I believe that in the name of Jesus, I am healed. God, I believe that in the name of Jesus, I have a job again next week. But the prayer of Jesus doesn't end here. 
He doesn't say, God, I believe that you have the power to save me. The prayer of Jesus continues and he says this, Yet not what I want, but what you want. Yet not what I want, what you want. Jesus realizes the importance of prayer. Prayer is important when our faith is being tested, but not just any prayer. Not a prayer that ignores the trial that is at hand. Not a prayer that pretends that nothing has happened and we can just continue as normal. Not a prayer that commands God. God, I want you to do this tomorrow because I have faith. And because I have faith, I have the right to claim that you will give me healing tomorrow. This is how sometimes you you find people pray, isn't it? God, in the name of Jesus, you have to do this. But Jesus never prays like that. The disciples never pray pray like that. You know, one of the interesting uh, things that you learn about Scripture, when you read the Bible from cover to cover, is to see how many prayers are written down in the Bible. Did Did you notice it? How many prayers you have written down in Scripture? There are many prayers that are written down. The Bible doesn't just say Joseph prayed or David prayed, but actually their prayer is there for us to read. Why do you think is that? Why do we have so many prayers in the Bible, even prayers of Jesus? It is surely because we are supposed to learn from their prayers. There's not even one prayer where you find anyone commanding God. God, in the name of Jesus, I claim that tomorrow this you have to do to me because I have enough faith. My faith is strong enough. You never find that. There's always humility. There's always the acknowledgement that, yes, this is what I'm praying for, but maybe what I'm praying for is not the right thing. There's an acknowledgement not only of the power of God, that God, you can do it, but also of the wisdom of God. God, you know what is best. Yes, God, I know that you can heal me right now, but God, not my will, your will be done, because your wisdom is still better than mine. Amen? Jesus prays, and we need to learn from that. When we go through testing times and it is difficult to follow Jesus, we need to become prayerful. We need to be watchful, but not just any prayer will do. We have the prayer of Jesus, and Jesus invited his disciples to be close enough with him so they could hear him pray, so they could learn from the prayer of Jesus. I hope that all of us would learn as well today to Say the right prayers when we go through difficult times as disciples as well. What happens to them at the end if we fast forward? The soldiers come and they go, isn't it? But they all go into the wrong directions. They react to the trial, but their reaction is wrong. If you don't know how to sit with Jesus in prayer, when you stand up and go and react, your reaction will be wrong, isn't it? They all go, they do something. Definitely all of us will have to respond to the time of testing. You will have to respond to being jobless. You have to respond to being ill. You have to respond to the uh, strains in the relationship that you experience. The question is, how are you going to respond? Because they were not able to sit with Jesus in prayer. When they go, they go into the wrong directions. Right? Secondly, to sleep is to forget that the flesh is weak. Jesus comes back to them and says, Keep watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is something that has become a cliche among Christians. Oh, Oh, brother, we thought you would come uh, last week for the prayer meeting. Oh, yeah, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Now it becomes like a cliche or an, an excuse, or we use it flippantly sometimes to uh, explain why uh, we don't stick to our word. No? Uh, I wanted to come, but yeah, even Jesus said, the flesh is weak, now what can I do? Uh, but the thing is that, yes, Jesus said the flesh is weak, but he overcame his flesh, isn't it? He did not give in to the flesh. Um, so that's the other part of, uh, of this here. But he acknowledges the weakness of the flesh. To sleep is to forget that the flesh is weak. Uh, one of the important lessons as a disciple is to realize that we are not supermen, that our flesh is weak, that our flesh is weak. And you can see that in the Bible many times that the bridge that is used by Satan to attack a person is the weakness of the flesh. In the case of the disciples, they just had dinner, they felt tired. It was easy for them to fall asleep. Maybe some of you feel like that today as well. You just had your lunch, you come to church, it's difficult to stay awake. Right? There's a reality to our human flesh. You see that with Esau. When he comes home, uh, he, he went out hunting. He, does, he, he didn't catch anything. He's famished. He's very hungry. He sees his brother Jacob who prepared um, a soup. And he's willing to forfeit his birthright just because of that soup. Isn't it? His flesh was weak. He was hungry in that moment. And because he was hungry, he made a decision that was wrong. Right? We learned in our marriage course that as couples, it is never wise to argue or to talk about any important issue after 10 o'clock at night when you are tired, isn't it? Because usually you become impatient, you become unkind, you say things that you regret the next day. So it's better to just leave it aside and to wait for the next day. There's a reality to our human flesh, right? a weakness that we cannot deny. And we have to be very careful about it. In the Bible, there were many uh, godly people, people of God, who messed up their life and their families. Why? Because of temptations uh, of, of sexual nature, isn't it? Sexual temptations, part of the flesh, the human flesh, the desires of the flesh. We know of David, who was a king after God's own heart, and he was a king for many years already. And he did the will of God, and then he grew old. And one evening, the Bible says he was too tired to go out to war. He says, oh, instead of going out to war, I will relax a bit on my terrace. And while he was relaxing in the evening, and probably he was tired already and a bit dizzy, I don't know what he, what he was drinking the whole day, he saw this beautiful woman opposite the palace taking a bath, and he fell for her. Isn't it? A man after God's own heart. How is that possible? Yet he fell. Our flesh is the bridge point that Satan uses to attack us. And we have to be very aware of it. We have to be wise about it. Paul says to Timothy, flee from the temptations that you encounter. Flee from them. Now realize that we, you are not superman. There are things that we cannot withstand. We are not strong enough. Our flesh is too weak. So we avoid that. We avoid it so that we can continue following Jesus. Now, there's a common misconception among Christians today that goes like this. Jesus had, has fought the fight for us. He has achieved our victory. All we need to do as Christians is enjoy the victory of Christ. Isn't it? Have you heard that before? Christ has fought the fight for us. We just enjoy the victory of Christ. And we make it sound as if there's no more fighting for us because Christ has fought everything. And the Christian life is supposed to be very easy. What does Paul say? says, put on the armor of God so that you, you can withstand the attacks of the enemy. If there's no fighting anymore for us, why do we need an armor? Isn't it? 
Paul should have said, put on your sandal and your shorts and put up your feet because Christian life is easy. He says, no, put on the armor of God because you need it. He says, Satan will attack you if you don't put on the armor of God. And he goes on to talk about what it means. Jesus says, you have to be watchful. There are going to be attacks. Don't be fooled into thinking that it will be a joyride. Everything will be easy. There will be attacks. And if you're not ready, if you're not watchful, Satan will attack you and you will fall. You will not stand. Yes, Jesus has fought the fight for us. But we need to be watchful and follow his example. Be prayerful and watchful. Through prayer we receive the strong spirit of God who enables us to strong to stand strong with him. James and John and Peter were saying that we are strong enough. We can stand with you. We can drink your cup. And yet they fell. Why? Because they relied on their own strength. Jesus said, you need to be prayerful. Why? Because when you pray, you are asking God for help. When you pray, you receive the strong spirit of God. Yes, your flesh is weak, but the spirit of God is strong. So when you pray and ask God to come, he comes in power and he gives you the power to withstand temptation. He gives us the power to go through the time of trial without falling. Amen. It is God's spirit that helps us to stand firm. Discipleship then is not a lifestyle that we acquire easily. It is not easy. It is not like if you come to our place, we've got uh, a lawn next to our house. And you see every spring, there are a lot of daisies. And you just wonder, why are there so many daisies? They just grow naturally, isn't it? No one plants them. There's no gardener who uh, tends after them. This is not how discipleship is. It isn't like daisies growing in a lawn. It requires work, isn't it? It requires the, the cultivating uh, pruning hand of a gardener who comes and helps us along the way. It requires the strength of the Spirit of God. It doesn't happen automatically. Amen? Can you say that to the person next to you? It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't happen naturally. Amen? In a way, if you ask me, discipleship is against your nature. Your nature is, your nature tells you, Receive service. Ask people to serve you. Discipleship tells you, no, you go and serve. It is very unnatural. The way of life that we are called to lead as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is very unnatural. So if you are sitting there thinking that, oh, somehow along the way God will change me and make me a committed disciple, it won't happen that way. Jesus says, you need to be watchful. I have called you to follow me. I have called you to be my disciples. But if you want to last to the end, if you want to continue until the end, you have to be watchful. Because if you are not, you will fall. Look at them, the first hurdle, and they fell. Isn't it? Thirdly, to sleep is to focus on the wrong things. We need to be alert because we do not know when our master will return. In the same context, a few verses earlier, Jesus talks about his second coming. He talks about the fact that he will come back. And the disciples say, tell us, when will it happen? How will we know that you are coming back? What are the signs that will help us understand when you are coming back. And he tells them this, Be on watch, be alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It will be like a man who goes away from home on a trip and leaves his servants in charge, after giving to each one his own work to do and after telling the doorkeeper to keep watch. Watch then, because you do not know when the master of the house is coming. It might be in the evening or at midnight, or before dawn or at sunrise. If he comes suddenly, he must not find you asleep. What I say to you then, I say to all, watch. So they ask him, Jesus, when are you coming back? 
Give us a few hints. We are your disciples, isn't it? Help us. He says, no, the only thing I can tell you is, watch. Watchfulness is important, but the watchfulness that Jesus talks about here is not watchfulness of different signs. What will happen next? It is not the watchfulness that you find many times uh, maybe on TV. Uh, You find uh, TV preachers exhort and try and tell you the exact chronology of the end time events, right? And the only thing they tell you to do is um, send me some money so I will send you even more prophecies about what will happen next. But not even once do they tell you that actually the coming of Jesus doesn't mean that you should know all the events and when they happen, but you should be watchful about yourself. It is a misunderstanding of watchfulness. It is not a watchfulness of the signs. Jesus doesn't expect us to know the chronology of the end time events. Right? I mean, if you are into that, I'm sorry to disappoint you because that is not important. He says, what is important is that you are watchful about yourself. Watchful about yourself because whether I come tomorrow or next week or next year, what really matters is that you are ready for it. Isn't it? That's the only thing that counts. So the problem then is not that the second coming is unpredictable and we don't really know when it comes. The biggest danger is that the, the disciples can fall asleep. Our problem is not that we do not know when Jesus comes back. Our problem is that we tend to fall asleep, that we tend to not be watchful. Jesus Christ says, this is what I tell you, and I tell everyone who is interested in knowing the chronology of events. Watch. That's the only thing. Be watchful about yourself. And that's the question then for us today. Are we watchful about ourselves? Are we watchful disciples? Have we remained faithful to God's calling? Do we understand, are we aware of the privilege it is to be called by God and the obligation that comes with the calling of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that we are called for a purpose? Are we following Jesus, living as servants? Are we still excited to go out and tell others? This is what it means to be watchful. It is being watchful about our life as disciples. Being ready, if Jesus was to come tonight, Being ready to say, yes, Jesus, I'm excited that you are coming tonight. I'm excited. I've been able to be watchful, to live as a disciple who has been watchful about his life. I've been able to follow you. Jesus Christ says, this is what really matters. Being watchful about the way we live our lives as disciples. So in conclusion, what happens to the disciples? They... Received all the exhortations, all the teaching of Jesus for three and a half years. But despite all of that, if you look at the last days of Jesus, you will see that they failed not only once, but they failed all the time. At every single hurdle, at every single opportunity they had to stand up and to follow Jesus as true disciples, they fell. They were not able to do so. It is a nameless woman who anoints Jesus for burial. It is a bystander who carries his cross. It is a pagan centurion who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. It is a member of the Jerusalem council who buries his body. It is women followers who watch him die and later go to the tomb and anoint his dead body. Where were the disciples of Jesus in all of this? They ran away. They They were nowhere to be found. Yet it is the 12 disciples of Jesus who received all the teaching who benefited from all the miracles, who witnessed the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, 
who were there during the transfiguration. This is my son, listen to him. They had the benefit of all the teaching of all the miracles, yet they fell at every single opportunity. They had to follow Jesus when crunch time arrived and it was really difficult to follow him. Jesus Christ says to follow me means that you have to take up your cross and to deny yourself. And Mark tells us the story of the disciples. And the point that Mark is trying to make here is this. Following Jesus will not always be easy. What Mark is telling us, you might be thinking like Peter, John and James in Gethsemane. That following Jesus is very easy. He says, look at the disciples. It wasn't easy for them. They saw all the miracles. They witnessed all the teaching, yet they failed. Be watchful. This is what I tell you, Jesus says, and what I tell everyone. Watch. Watch because it's not going to be easy. Whatever our situation is right now, in our journey with Jesus as disciples, let us remember what Jesus Christ said. Let us remember the teaching of Jesus. Yes, it is not going to be easy, but he's given us an example. His example is what we see in Gethsemane when Jesus prepares for the trial ahead. What does he do? He doesn't rely on his own power. Say, he's the son of God. He's done so many miracles. Why does he need to pray? No, he goes and he prays. He's asking the father, father, give me strength. Father, it is difficult. Father, I acknowledge that this is difficult for me. Father, I know that you are a wise God. Whatever your will is, let it be done in my life. Jesus prepares for it. This is the example that we have. Whatever our situation is, Whatever changes are ahead of us, whatever challenges are ahead of us, the assurance that we have in Scripture is not that it's going to be easy, that Jesus will make the storm go away and that's it. No, the assurance we have is that God is with us, that His Spirit is with us to give us the strength that we need to go through that trial and to remain faithful disciples all throughout. Amen? The wonderful message is this. That even though all of them fell asleep, there was hope for them. When the women arrive at the tomb in Mark 16, what does the angel tell them? Go and tell his disciples and tell even Peter, that big mouth who was promising so much. Lord, I can die with you. Lord, I will be with you. Lord, I will never deny you. Go and tell his disciples and even Peter that I am waiting for them in Galilee. They are still my disciples. I'm not giving up on them. The expectations of Jesus, our master, are very high. But his patience is very long. Amen. His expectations are high, but he will not give up on us. He will continue to be patient. He will continue to wait for us. He will continue to be there for us, to help us whenever we ask him for help. Amen. How do we end this message? I thought if we talked about falling asleep and if prayer is the antidote to falling asleep, why don't we spend a few minutes to pray together for the person next to us? I don't know what all of you are going through right now and I don't know to what extent you need, you need God's strong spirit to be with you right now. But pray for the person next to you and ask God to be with them in whatever they are going through right now, whatever their situation is. Let's pray for each other and ask God to be with us. Amen. Ask God to help us be watchful. Maybe some of us are in the same position that the disciples were. We don't even realize the seriousness of our situation. Let's ask God to help us understand 
to help us interpret the situations we are in rightly and to be watchful wherever we are in our journey. Amen? Let's spend a few minutes doing that and then uh, we will sing a song together and after that Kuya Rudy will close us in prayer.